everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by my friends over at a company called Real Mushrooms, realmushrooms.com. Um, Sky Chilton and his father, Jeff Chilton. I interviewed Jeff a number of episodes ago. Uh, really interesting guys. I, I really enjoyed that conversation with Jeff. Um, and it's a company that sells and distributes medicinal mushrooms in powder or capsule form. Um, I was really happy to have these guys come on. Uh, I think they're very much in alignment with the, the values of the podcast. Uh, as you all know, a big part of this podcast is uh, about uh, plant medicine, holistic medicine. And I, I think the benefits of medicinal mushrooms are, are truly fantastic. And I think there's really a growing body of work uh, that, that's really showing and alluding to all of the amazing properties that mushrooms have. Um, they sell a lot of different mushrooms, um, things you've probably heard of like reishi, chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail, cordyceps. Um, those are all mushrooms I work with. They, they're, they're part of uh, what I consider uh, for myself a, a really holistic uh, supplement regime. Um, and the, the thing I really love about their company, not only are they really good guys, I think they're really ethical guys, um, but... Um, the, the product is really amazing. It's all uh, 100% mushrooms. They're organic. Uh, and, and that's really rare. For better or for worse, the supplement in this industry is, is highly unregulated. Um, and so often when you get supplements, you don't necessarily know what you're getting. You may be getting some mushroom. You may be getting a bunch of fillers and other things. Oftentimes, even when you're buying what may be a mushroom. It may not have any of that mushroom in it at all, unfortunately. Uh, even some of the big, uh, I think even the biggest company that, that sells mushrooms, actually it's not the fruiting body, not the mushroom itself. It's the mycelial, which is grown on grain, and then those things are mixed up and then sold in a supplement form. So not only are you not getting the mushroom itself, you're getting the mycelium uh, mixed with grain. So um, it's one of the amazing things of real mushrooms is it's exactly that. It's real mushrooms. So it's 100% mushrooms, organic. So you know you're getting a really good uh, product. You're getting the actual fruiting body, the, the mushroom itself, 100% of that. Um, and again, just really great guys. I'm, I'm really happy to have them on and supporting this podcast. Uh, so if you'd like a really good product, uh, you'd like to start working with medicinal mushrooms, um, check out their site, realmushrooms.com. Um, and also listeners of the show. Uh, if you go to their site, realmushrooms.com forward slash universe, you get 25% off your first order, uh, which is a really good deal. And I think once you uh, uh, start working and, and tasting their products, you'll you'll really uh, see and feel a big difference. So uh, thank you to them. And uh, I think that's it. And without further ado, here is the intro to the show. On this episode of the podcast, I sat down with Kat Courtney. Uh, I was familiar with Kat for a few months or maybe a, a year now. Uh, she's a really interesting woman. She has a company called Plant Medicine People. Uh, she works with uh, sacred plants, things like ayahuasca, wachuma. Um, <clears throat> I believe she does retreats. Uh, she does work with integration. Uh, she has a really good Instagram channel as well, where she uh, puts out pretty regular content about these subjects. Uh, so I was really happy to have her on. Um, we got into her life, kind of what got her interested in in this work, and and kind of this 
like so many people, I think a spiritual crisis that happened and a, a diagnosis of bipolar disorder and how she found healing and wisdom through plants like um, ayahuasca and, and wachuma, San Pedro. Uh, so it was a really beautiful conversation. We got into all of those topics, her, her background uh, about these plants like ayahuasca, wachuma, um, just kind of the, the, the general direction that this work is going, uh, things that are important, uh, some of the pitfalls. Um, and really, it was just a really beautiful conversation. And I think it was really led by um, what we talked about in this podcast, uh, which is this experiential wisdom, this this wisdom that, that comes from the plants, that's driven by the plants. Uh, we spoke a lot about this idea of plant intelligence and what that means. Uh, so it was a really uh, lovely conversation. And, and again, I think she really um, speaks from a place of, of deep wisdom of having done this work. And um, it's... Uh, it's a bit of a rare thing. Um, it, it, as I mentioned to her, it was part of the reason why I started this podcast was to really give voice to people who have been doing this work for a while and, and, and really speak from this place of embodied wisdom, um, which I think is really important because it's uh, they're, they're, there's a much different quality to, to their words and to the depth. So um, I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Kat. As always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me uh, to continue to produce all of this content. Patreon is a really wonderful option. It's a website. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As, to all the people supporting via Patreon, to all the patrons, as always, thank you very much for your support. It, it means a lot, and it, it really is a big help in allowing me to continue to, to do this work. Um, <clears throat> if you're not able to do that, uh, just doing some of the small things like helping with the algorithms is a big help. So if you're viewing this on YouTube or Rumble hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any questions or comments in the comment section, sharing these videos, that's a really big help. Uh, and then with the audio versions, uh, the, the biggest ones are Apple Podcasts and Spotify, um, following the show, giving it a starred rating, and also with Apple Podcasts, you can do a short review, and all of those things are really big help. So I think that's it. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Cal. Running out from the maze. Running out from the maze. Running out of the maze. Today. Running out from the maze. Running out from the maze. Running out from the maze. Today. Running out from the maze. Running out from the maze Running out of the maze Today Well, great, Kat. Well, welcome. Um, it's it's a pleasure to have you on. I I became familiar with your channel a, a number of months back. I think it was on Instagram and then... Um, someone who was working for you reached out to me about setting up this interview and I was actually really busy at the time. I was kind of traveling and, and doing work. So, uh, I just got back to her a few weeks ago and, but then it turns out she wasn't working for you anymore, but, but luckily we got in touch, uh, and we set this up. So, um, some of the people listening to this, I would imagine because it's mainly about plants and plant medicine. So they, they may have heard of you. They, they may be familiar with you already, but, uh, for those that aren't, um, maybe we could just start with a, a little bit about 
about you, about CAD and your background, what, what got you interested in this work and, and how you came to do what you do. Absolutely. Yeah, Jason, thanks for having me. We, we had to work a little bit to make this align, but that's, that's par for the course in the, the nature of this work. Um, yeah, so just quickly, my background, I found my way to ayahuasca first about 20 years ago, uh, before it was all the rage to sit with these medicines. I feel incredibly blessed that I got the calling very early on because I found my way in a similar fashion to a lot of people. I needed some significant healing. I was working with uh, functional alcoholism, bulimia. I'd been diagnosed bipolar, just kind of this typical woman who was lost in the world because I hadn't been taught the tools of self-love, uh, how to work with the very strong emotions that I experienced. And so I followed a guy to the Amazon and fell in love immediately, love at first cup with ayahuasca um, and went back and forth for a couple of years to do my own healing, but kept feeling this calling of, wow, can a white girl from Montana learn an indigenous tradition. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I worked with a bunch of people before I found my teacher, which is also normal of just kind of trying to find uh, what aligned with me in this work. And I found a gentleman who uh, is also Western, but trained for 17 years in the Shipipokanibo, Quechua Lamista, uh, just traditions of working with ayahuasca, which if you don't know, are just a, a couple of different tribes that have been working with ayahuasca for thousands of years. And uh, he had been trained by Guillermo Arevalo, who is kind of famous for a lot of reasons, but one of which is he's one of the first from the Shipipo tradition to train Westerners to hold ceremonies. So I got blessed that my kind of dream of learning this process was, was answered. And I trained for eight years with this gentleman and then have done my own thing for a long time too. Um, and so that's the, 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 the ayahuasca history. And then I also trained with the late great Howard Lawler to learn Wachuma. Um, Howard was one of the most powerful Wachumeros uh, while he was alive. And he, it was his ayahuasca center that I went to for the first time 20 years ago. And so he became a father and a mentor to me. So I carry both ayahuasca and Wachuma, uh, which I think are beautiful representations of the divine feminine and the divine masculine and such uh, gorgeous medicines to work with in combination. Um, and so it's just been you know, my journey one step at a time, both blessed to have so many years of experience with these medicines, but also well aware that I don't know much at all in the context of how much there is to know. Uh, so it's always, it's a very humble walk. I think the longer we do this, the more humble we become because we're just, we become so aware of the vastness of the intelligence of these medicines and of consciousness itself. Um, but uh, I've been, you know, fully all in to carrying medicines for about 15 years now. And yeah, and I also, by the way, work with people in the aftermath and integration. I'm really passionate about um, integrating these profound experiences so that they can impact our everyday lives. So most of my day to day work is focused on integration, but I still do ceremony work a handful of times a year. So what was that like? Uh, I mean, 20 years ago, it was a much, 
a much different world. I mean, there, there, there wasn't things like we're doing now. There, there. I mean, podcasts in general, I don't think existed twenty years ago. But, but, but just information uh, like things we're doing now. There, there, there was really none of that. I mean, there was very little, if any, literature. There was certainly almost nothing on the internet. So, what was that experience like going to the Amazon? As uh, you said, you went with someone, but. Uh, you know, the, the two of you are, are going uh, probably eventually by yourself. What, what was that journey like of entering this world that, that you know, as you said, for a, a woman from Montana, I, I would imagine is, it's quite different. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like what, what was that, those early experiences like? And, you know, just entering such a... Uh, a foreign world and, and, and not just in the physical reality, but it, it's very much a, a, another world that we're entering when, when we embark on this journey of working with plants as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It was both like discovering a best kept secret and also uh, incredibly alienating. No, because um, I came home from the jungle with this awakening of sorts. And I lived in Los Angeles at the time, and all of my friends in LA were just kind of like, okay, glad you had a great trip in the jungle, but they had no context, you know, no ability to understand um, my experience, basically. And so eventually, it was only, only a handful of months after my first trip to the Amazon that I left LA. I left the friendship group. It's like I felt like I needed a, a clean slate because I, I just couldn't relate to my old identity, my old life in the same way. And I don't think that's changed so much, even though there's a lot of us doing this work now. It is a common experience to realize that the old version of our lives isn't something we can relate to anymore. Mine was just dramatic in that there wasn't any literature. There wasn't any examples of this. I kind of felt crazy a lot of the time. I felt really, um, uh, in some ways, damaged or wounded because uh, I was the alien. Um, I was the weirdo. And so I just had to instinctively follow you know, what I felt called to do, which is to kind of start from scratch. And ironically, I moved to Las Vegas to get sober, which who does that? But why not? If I can do it there, I can do it anywhere. Uh, and just started from scratch and finding a community of, of like-minded people. And thankfully, even though 20 years ago there wasn't a lot of medicine work, it still existed. And I started finding a person here, a person there, somebody pouring in the U.S. You know, like I started, uh, thanks to the Internet, expanding that network and starting to feel less and less crazy. It just formed a community one person at a time around the world. Um, and it just sort of snowballed from there. Uh, but yeah, there wasn't, especially around integration, there wasn't any wisdom yet out there. We didn't actually start documenting psychedelic integration until 2017. That was just a handful of years ago, right? So back in the early 2000s, nobody was really focusing on the aftermath of these experiences, which is why it became my passion eventually. But I was a guinea pig of sorts and not really, I mean, my therapist didn't know what to do with the ayahuasca visions, you know, um, nobody really did. So it was a very intuitive, confusing process. 
to get to a, a place of, of stability, which is why I'm really passionate for offering that to others doing the work as I didn't have that for myself back then. You said it, it took you a while to, to kind of find your teacher, um, which I think for many people can be a common experience. And it's also a question a lot of people have is, is kind of like where to start. And, and certainly there, there is a, you know, there's a lot of information now, which is good. And, and, you know, like many things, it, it can even be overwhelming sometimes, but what was that journey like for you of like, like, how did that look? It was sitting with one teacher and just not maybe feeling a resonance and going to someone else, or you were kind of guided in, in that journey. What, what was that like for you? Yeah. Oh, it's such a good question because it's something I, I get a lot from people of, of how do I manifest that, that teacher, especially with ayahuasca, because it's important to learn from someone else, right? Um, so it involved a lot of prayer, a lot of just like laying intentions, which is the heart of this work across the board, of being very conscious of what is in our hearts. So I prayed about it a lot of just feeling uh, a calling to uh, an individual that felt safe, that wanted to show me the way. Um, it did involve, yeah, sitting with a lot of different people that I, it just wasn't quite right. And so there was a lot of courage in saying no to an opportunity that, that didn't light up my heart so that I could find the yes. That's really hard. I think often we want to take what comes along because we're scared that the thing we really want doesn't exist. At least I face that a lot of, of closing a door and thinking, did I just lose my access to the medicine? But it just didn't feel right. Um, and so it is uh, when we're manifesting a teacher, it's a lot of self-discovery of what is it that I want to manifest? And so I started getting clearer and clearer with each person I sat with of, okay, that's not it because, you know, because they weren't traditionally trained because I didn't feel safe, you know, any of the different reasons. And of course, like it always happens or quite often happens, I was just about to give up on the quest when someone said, you know, I know this person and I think maybe you'll like him and maybe you should go sit with him. And within 30 seconds of being in his ceremony, I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, this is it. And of course, then he initially said, no, I don't think you can hack it. Yeah, I'm not taking you on as an apprentice. I'm like, okay, well, maybe then it's not meant to be. And then a handful of months later, he called me and said, I keep hearing your name. So I had to give it up for it to manifest, which is one of the core teachings of ayahuasca around attachment, around manifesting from a place of desperation versus trust. So when I let it go, it found me, but it was quite a process to get to that place of it being truly aligned. Um, so that, that's, that was my story with it. So I would imagine most people listening to this are familiar with ayahuasca, but, but if there's people listening who aren't, and, and, and this is a big question, but, but how would you describe ayahuasca to people? Um, whether universally or, or even personally for you, like what, um, what is ayahuasca? What is it doing? What What is the story behind it? That, that's that, that was, it? and especially through your own discovery, that that made it meaningful for you. Hmm. 
I love that question. Thank you for framing it in a personal sense too, because it's always personal and how we answer it. Um, for So for me, ayahuasca is an expander of consciousness. Uh, it is this ancient Amazonian brew, which must involve two plants to create the synergy of this experience of, of expansion. Um, so a psychedelic plant brew that contains a consciousness that for me is profoundly feminine. She represents the divine mother to me. Um, this experience of, uh, you know, connecting with the, the jungle where she's from, which to me is like the womb of the earth. You know, this wildly uh, conscious, alive, wild space that, that ayahuasca embodies herself that is just full of ancient wisdom. And so, you know, a lot of people reference ayahuasca as a healer because she can help us heal anything, really. But I don't see her as a healer. I see her as a, a catalyst for awakening the healer within. She is a profound teacher that shows us our power of, of healing, of expanding, um, our, you know, holographic representation of the universe. We are the universe. It's all within each of us. And so ayahuasca doesn't really do anything for us. She awakens our capacity to do these things ourselves. So that's why I consider her such an incredible mom, is a good mom, teaches her kids how to navigate the world in empowerment themselves. She doesn't do it for them because that's enabling. So my experience of her is of the best mother ever, full of wisdom, always 10 steps or more ahead of my ego, my mind, which is profoundly why she's expansive, is, is, uh, and she teaches experientially. That's another important component of ayahuasca. She doesn't lecture. It isn't about uh, sharing wisdom from an intellectual space. It's experiential, which is far more impactful. Because if I ask somebody to remember a math lecture in high school, unlikely that they can give me one. But if you remember your first kiss or are asked to remember your first kiss, something experiential, we got that. That's readily available. So that's the one of the keys to ayahuasca's power is it's experiential and how she teaches us. And you, you you mentioned that you you began an apprenticeship. What what was that like? And um, and and even what does that mean for for someone to begin to do that? The apprenticeship I did with my teacher is honestly the most intimate relationship I've ever had in my life. And it was never physical. It was fully energetic, but it, it involved a level of trust uh, that is indescribable. Because before I accepted the apprenticeship, he laid down the parameters that in the tradition that, that he carried anyway, especially with the Shipipo, it's a minimum seven-year commitment very much like a uh, the path to becoming a doctor is a lot of work and a lot of uh, internships, like in the field work. So there's, you know, a little bit to learn from an intellectual capacity and so much to learn from an experiential lens of how to create a safe container for other people working with a medicine that in some ways isn't safe, at least not to our egos. So that apprenticeship was uh, a commitment of the highest order. When I shook his hand and agreed a minimum of seven years, he also said, look, this has to be the, the highest priority in your life. 
above, I was married with a stepson at the time, above family, above everything else, because it is not to be dramatic in some ways, life or death, because these medicines are, ayahuasca is strong and not uh, owning the responsibility of being her carrier is, is setting up uh, a container that isn't safe. So it was a massive commitment that this is the priority that I will give this seven or more years of my life in order to learn how to carry this medicine safely. Um, the sacrifice involved was beyond what I could have predicted, but then so were the gifts and they continue to be that way. Of, uh, because when you, I think when you agree to be a medicine carrier, you're agreeing to always do your shadow work too. At least that's a component that I feel is essential to maintaining a level of safety for other people to sit with medicine carriers is that our work is never done. And that's exhausting and intimidating because it's very tempting to try to arrive at a place where I'm like, okay, I've arrived, you know, I've, I've got it. The secrets of the universe. It's never fully true because life is always happening and we always have a shadow. So the apprenticeship also involved a continued commitment to my own healing and shadow work, to never just rest in the role of being uh, a caretaker or a carrier, but also always the participant too. Um, and that's part of, of what my teacher taught me involves safety as well. So it was, it was and continues to be the biggest commitment of my life. You spoke about two really interesting things, and, and, and one was this idea of safety. And it was interesting because you used it in two ways. You, you, you said these plant medicines are not inherently safe. And, and even this idea that, that they engender even this idea of life and death. Um, and then on the other hand, you're saying like all of this work was really important for safety. Um, and, and I think that's it's something that a lot of people there there's not enough nuance of that topic so could you you talk more about that because i think both of those points you brought up are are actually really really important thank you for hearing the contradiction in that it's safety is one of my favorite topics to explore in this space because of what you noted i think the safety that we are seeking from the space of our minds which is the part of our consciousness that's in separateness, right? That's experiencing the idea that we are alone, which we aren't, but it feels that way sometimes, right? That safety that that part of us seeks, it doesn't exist because that part of us would like to know that when we sit with ayahuasca, nothing bad will happen, as an example, or that when we wake up in the morning, nothing bad will happen. And that kind of safety can never be guaranteed, ever, because duality. It's dangerous to that part of ourselves. So of course, a medicine like ayahuasca that intensifies the conscious experience of duality isn't safe either. I mean, as you know, ayahuasca loves to take us into the depths of what we consider hell. That doesn't feel safe sometimes. So the safety that I speak about is the relationship that we all have with the part of ourselves that is always safe. The eternal nature of the language I use is the soul. You know, my soul cannot be created nor destroyed. It is energy that is eternal. And when I connect with that part of myself, I'm always safe, even in the midst of 
traversing the, the corners of my own personal hell with ayahuasca, it's safe. It's safe. So, you know, ayahuasca as a word means vine of the dead or vine of the soul, because one of her fundamental teachings is that death is safe, is that everything dies to be reborn again, to die again, to be reborn again. And if we can remember that, that safety is inherent even in the process of, of death, then we can feel safe in the throes of, of medicine that takes us into our darkness. But if we're defining safety as, oh, I'm not going to get uncomfortable, I'm not going to be harmed, we don't get that guarantee with life or with plant medicines. So it's reframing safety from a bigger view of like, we're safe because the game of duality is safe because death is safe. But that's a big thing to lean into and to trust. And so ayahuasca is one of the medicines that can find where we don't trust that and to bring light and healing and awareness to it. But that's scary and difficult. So you, to bring it full circle, I always feel like we want to sit with facilitators that have done that for themselves, gone into death and the darkest corners of their psyches so that they are spacious enough to hold that for someone else. I think it's a Matt Kahn quote that we can only meet people in the depth of which we've met ourselves. So that's one of the reasons why the apprenticeship was seven years long. Actually, for me, I worked for 10 years before I poured a single cup of medicine because I had to meet myself in that depth to hold that as a safe container for somebody else to do the same. Do you think there's a maybe a little bit of a disconnect or a confusion because I think especially in the beginning when a lot of people approach this work, there was, again, they were engendering it with a lot of other ideas of maybe things like Eastern spirituality and things of like, you know, love and light and everything is good. And, um, and, and as you said, like one of the things that ayahuasca often does is it, you know, in your words, is it can take us into our own personal hell. Um, and that's that's often not what a lot of people think they're looking for. Like they they may think what they need from a situation is love and light and gentleness and and beauty and to always see things from a, a positive side. But maybe in that way, avoiding something that that ultimately could be that teaching, but that we actually might need to go into something to really be able to say that from from a based place, from, from a place of reality and, and not just of the intellect. Um, how important do you think that is in ayahuasca? Because I, I think that's also something that often gets maybe overlooked. Um, but I think there is something in people who've done this work for a while where that can't be overlooked because eventually it, it can't be avoided. <laughs> And I would argue that's true both for life and working with ayahuasca is because we're in duality. So yeah, I always want to be an honest messenger on her behalf that um, it's very much for me like the opening line to a tale of two cities, that it is the best of times and the worst of times. And yeah, we're often seeking when we sit with a plant medicine like ayahuasca, uh, to expand our capacity for joy. But 
if we're in duality and joy and grief, as an example, are partners, if we want more joy, we're going to experience more grief. If I want to learn more about hot, I have to know what cold feels like. It's just the nature of consciousness. And so while this medicine has been for me the key to being more heart-led and happy and connected in my life, it's also taken me into the hardest experiences I've gone through too, in some ways, because they go together. And so to be honest messengers of this medicine, uh, we have to confront what, you know, in a lot of cases is essentially spiritual bypassing, that we want to go to the all good place. And uh, all, on the highest level, it is all good. But sometimes what we have to be honest about in order to get to a place of more joy is that right now we're hurting. And right now it's scary. And right now we're in grief. You know, whatever the discomfort is, uh, it's not avoiding that. It's like to use an expression ayahuasca has said to me probably a million times. It's like she's teaching me to walk through hell with a smile on my face. So everything becomes heaven. Because it's very easy to adore a night full of lollipops and rainbows and love. It is not so easy to adore a night of processing the grief of loss or fear on a primal level. But she's right. If I can crack the code of being welcoming to even the hardest process that I might go through, then everything is heaven. And heaven is a state of consciousness. So that's why she takes us to these places of difficulty, because it's very empowering to learn to say yes to something that's uncomfortable and painful and scary. But that's precisely the way that we can bring joy into any situation. Then it's not conditional. Then we are so empowered that even when curveballs come in our lives, we can say yes. Like, all right, this is happening. How do I lean in? How do I work with this? Because resistance equals suffering. And so that's why she's such a, you know, a good teacher of working with the darkness, because it exists, period. There's nothing we can do about that. You spoke about also this really interesting contrast of something that's intellectual versus experiential. Um, and you said, you know, a, a certain part of your training, a, a rather small part of your training was was intellectual, but most of it was experiential. And and I think there's a lot of people right now who are interested in doing this work. And, you know, you even see programs popping up of online modules or a month-long apprenticeship in the jungle of maybe gaining some experiential knowledge. But, but, but really that idea, which, you know, also, as you said, like these things aren't disassociated from life. I mean... <laughs> What, what ayahuasca is, isn't separate from life. And, and I think many people, even on an intellectual level, understand that, that experience always far, far outweighs something that's intellectual. But even most of our training and, you know, even things like a lot of schools that we go to do tend to focus more on the intellect. Um, so maybe is that something you can talk a bit more about, about why that experiential, like, you know, and especially if someone hasn't maybe been in an ayahuasca ceremony, I mean, you know, <laughs> depending on where you are, how that's run, but 
um, a lot of things can come up and, you know, it's not always pretty and nice. I mean, it, it's literally, you're dealing with vomit and shit and fear and darkness and people having incredible experiences, but some of them are very seemingly beautiful. Some are terrifying. I mean, really the entire gamut of life's emotions can, can come out in that. And, and, you know, to really prepare oneself for that, um, it does seem maybe a bit naive to think that there would be any way to prepare oneself from that without not only going through that experience yourself, but, but really being around that, you know, and even in the cultures that are familiar with that, it's like really living that day in and day out to just like, if you want to play the piano, like you can study it and, you know, hear lectures and things about it. But until you put your fingers on those, those keys and just sit at that piano for days and months and years, it's, it's a very different experience. Yeah, it's a perfect comparison is learning a musical instrument, you know, learning anything experiential. Um, and yeah, there are all of these opportunities popping up to scratch the surface of the intellectual knowledge, which is awesome, which is wonderful to share this knowledge, but it should not be uh, a replacement for the actual experience. Because like you said, if you read about playing the piano, that's very different than learning to play it, which is why the vast majority of the training, if you want to call it that, is not just experiential, it's about self-discovery. Because again, I like that quote, if we can't meet any other individual in any other depth than we've met ourselves. So my training was really about drinking a lot of medicine and going through my own corners of darkness and bringing light and illumination because my corners of darkness are universal. We're holographic representations of the entire universe, all of us. So the more I had that opportunity to expand into the discomfort of my primal fears, contractions, confusion, etc. Um, that is and was the training to be able to hold that space for other people. And let me give you a tangible example of why this is so important. Um, let's say as a facilitator, I poured medicine for someone who is going through a primal fear of death. If I still carry to a large degree that primal fear and I go help them, I carry fear that is now contagious to the individual dealing with fear. And as ayahuasca says, we can't cross our fingers behind our back and not have that be illuminated by a medicine as powerful as she is. So how could it be safe if I'm afraid of the thing that I'm helping somebody else be afraid of? Fear is contagious. And it doesn't matter how well-meaning we are, that we really care about that person's journey. If we're still grappling with that same primal fear, it will be amplified in the space rather than calmed, rather than creating a, a container of safety. So safety can't be faked in this regard. Safety is just trust in this language. Is when I sit with somebody that's going through a shadow experience, as my teacher would say, my only job is to be as grounded as the earth itself. And being grounded and connected to the earth means trusting the process. If we got this, everything's okay. okay. And we can't fake that. I can't fake that. If I don't think it's okay, the person that is sitting in my guidance also is going to feel it's not okay. And that is a, an awful way to learn. So that's why the majority of, of training to be a carrier of these medicines has to be experiential. We can't avoid 
going into the corners of our own fear, because that's going to show under the amplification, the illumination of these medicines, and people will feel it. You mentioned a really interesting thing that, that when you went back, um, on the one hand, there, there was very little emphasis at the time of integration, but um, you said this really interesting thing about like even uh, a psychotherapist or a psychologist, uh, uh, a psychiatrist couldn't understand what you were speaking about. Um, why do you think that is? What, why do you think there's there's such a split? Because it's a very interesting word. I mean, psychiatrist or psychologist, it, it comes from the Greek word psyche, which has to do with soul. And, um, you know, another one of the translations of ayahuasca, as you said, vine of the dead and also vine of the soul. And so at its root, it should be getting at the same thing. And yet, as you said, you know, maybe up until very recently, um, for the last probably few hundred years, there, there was somehow a, a break in language, a, a different cosmovision. And, um, you know, even to the point of, uh, uh, you know, like you were saying, that there is no substitute for that experiential process. And so if those people weren't having that experiential process, obviously it, it could be difficult for them to understand it. And yet if you're dealing with the soul, if you're dealing with the psyche, there, there should be universal language or understanding. So, um, you know, and even at, at maybe a more bad extreme, a lot of those people may view someone as having a psychotic break or, or even institutionalize them. Um, so, w and this is a big question and I don't know, maybe you don't have an answer for it, but where do you think that split came from and, and why do you think that split was so profound and still is, although, you know, as this work gets out there, there, there does seem to be more of maybe an understanding, a, a crossover, but, but do you have any sense of kind of the origin of that? My sense is that as often is the case in our learning trajectory as a human species, the pendulum just went so far in the direction of the mind that somewhere along the way, we mistook experience for mental understanding because we're very driven by our intellects in modern culture. Um, and the world has been built up in an amazing way as a result of how brilliant our intellect has become. But in the space of, of psychology, it's become more about understanding than it has about experience. So we've lost that experiential connection with the soul. We've lost the trust on an emotional level of how messy it is to connect with the soul. We want to stay where we perceive it's safe and uh, and organized in the, the space of the mind. So what's happened is that we label people that go into experiences of uh, the psyche as mentally ill. Ayahuasca uh, likes to reframe that. Uh, for me, I don't say anything is mentally ill. I like to say there's a mental injury. There's something that has happened that has hurt us, but it's not an illness because the shamanic perspective that I learned of this process is that if somebody goes into a psychotic break or an emotional breakdown, it's an opportunity for profound like breakthrough, that it isn't a sign that somebody's broken. It's a sign that somebody's going through a rite of passage. 
But in our culture, in the modern medicine world, uh, we label it as something is wrong. So, you know, being labeled as bipolar when I was 21, I felt like I had a broken brain and I, I had no hope for healing. And the truth of it is, I was just in a process of trying to understand my own consciousness without any tools to feel grounded in the intensity. And then given that label, that just made it worse of like, well, I'm broken and I have to be medicated the rest of my life, which wasn't true. It was true. I was going through a very intense rite of passage. But the way that we deal with that in our culture is is typically by just labeling, medicating and pushing away because we've, we've grown uncomfortable with intense emotion. And that's one of the reasons why I think ayahuasca is having such a global expansion is she teaches us to be comfortable with our emotions and the intensity of, of consciousness as a whole. We can't hide from it when we work with her. Um, and so what I ended up finding that was so helpful for me early on is I found a therapist who was Jungian, who understood that relationship to soul because that was his training. So he had never drank ayahuasca, but he understood the archetypes that I was moving through and how universal they will. So uh, he was so supportive in making sense of, no, you're not broken, sweetheart. You're just going through a big rite of passage. And you need tools and awareness to support that, to let it be complete itself, not to take medication that, that just pauses the process. So it's just, and I think there's a lot of shifting happening in, in psychology in this field, coming back to the awareness that it's about our relationship with our soul, not just wisdom that we hold intellectually. It seems like the pendulum is trying to find a space of balance again. We went so far into the mind and now we're, we're balancing out again. That's just what we, we do as we evolve. Yeah. It, with that word balance, <clears throat> I think that's really important. And you also said something really beautiful uh, um, kind of this idea that that maybe in the, for lack of a better word, the, the the Western world, we've we've built up these amazing things from the power of the mind. And one thing I see, and I mean it's a big generalization, but but maybe as an archetype, is often people who come to this work, uh, they begin maybe to to idealize these traditions while at the same time kind of degrading maybe the societies that they come from. And that idea of balance is very important. And, um, you know, there's even a, um, a teacher who I work with from the Colombian Amazon who has this prophecy that, that we're living in this time of what he calls the dear Amasa, the children of the new dawn, the, the people who can bridge the medicines of the four directions. And I think even in that one line, it's really important because it means every direction has medicine. Um, so is that something you can speak maybe more about? Is just that idea of balance, you know, because as you said, very wisely, like, so many of the problems in the world seem to stem from from you know people going too far <laughs> you know even in buddhist terms i mean that's that's kind of the maybe if you had to summarize buddhism in one way it would often be summarized in that middle way which is is just that it's about bringing balance um, and so kind of that idea, you know, and again, it's kind of a, a lack of better words, something we have to use, but, but that balance between the Western world, which is, 
where probably almost all of this audience comes from, for example, and, and where we're coming from. Um, and yet we're talking about something that, again, in generic terms, would be considered more like indigenous medicine or indigenous wisdom. And, and where is that balance? You said something so near and dear to my heart, my own learning process right now around uh, just highlighting that sometimes we idealize the the cultures that um, aren't Western, essentially. And one of the teachings that's coming through really strongly for me right now that's related to what you just shared is I have a mentor who is a maestro born and raised in the jungle, but happens to speak fluent English so we can go deep into these topics. And he catches me all the time when I sort of um, shame my culture of the Western world in favor of the indigenous perspective. And he's always like, sweetheart, we do it too. <laughs> you know, like bridging this balance and understanding that humanity is humanity. And, and I think that's so important just to embody more because we're living in a world that is increasingly divisive, that we are othering each other like crazy and it's creating so much pain and wars and really, when you work with medicines like ayahuasca, although there are very different sort of maybe perspectives around being mind attached versus heart, et cetera, the balance in what we're speaking of is just recognizing that human beings are human beings. And, you know, even if we grow up in entirely different cultures and environments, the core of who we are is the same in that we suffer and that we love and that we have aspirations and dreams and, and it's just beautiful in its universal quality. And it's really easy to get hung up on the othering. Uh, and so it's something that's really up for me right now in my own process is just recognizing that, um, uh, that humans are humans and that I don't want to shame nor idolize any particular culture because in idolizing the indigenous beings that I trained with, I failed to see their shadows. I didn't let them have a shadow, actually, until it was very readily apparent that they did. So there's a lot of pedestals that we're giving in, well, any spiritual space, right? Like, and, and that creates pain. When we make somebody larger than life, we make them a guru rather than a human, it's inevitable they're going to fall off that pedestal. And I think uh, a lot of Westerners, we do that with the indigenous people that we get to work with because part of its protectiveness is they aren't often uh, a part of the expansion, especially from the perspective of capitalism that is happening. But part of it is 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 our own shadow of idol worship and and greater than, you know. So it's an important thing to name in this space because at least for me, I'm still try trying to strike that balance of intense respect and reverence for the wisdom keepers that have been carrying these traditions in for generations in these lineages and making sure they get to come along for the ride of this expansion that we're on, but not doing so in a way that creates that pedestal and guru worship that's going to inevitably cause more heartbreak. Because I've been through that a lot. Um, and I don't have the answers, but I'm glad for a space to, to discuss it, to make us aware of it, of, of really being reverent to these traditions, but not in a way that creates a hierarchy. You you mentioned a couple times that, that 
one of the things you were you were dealing with and that ultimately maybe brought you to to, to ayahuasca was was what you were diagnosed with in in that that word or that term of bipolar it's it's a very interesting i think complex that there there's many different ways of looking at it and 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 many different views of that as well um what what are your feelings about this may be a multifaceted question. Um, one, the, the the benefit of maybe a more Western approach to that, and are there times where something like medication may be needed, or is it beneficial? Uh, what are the benefits of working with something like ayahuasca, and especially maybe in a traditional setting, or or maybe also in a more modern setting? You know, working with I mean, maybe not ayahuasca. It could be maybe you know, synthesized psilocybin or or MDMA or something like that. Um, and also, are there are there also risks with doing that? Which I think is 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 maybe kind of what I alluded to in the controversial aspect of it, because I think it's something that that certainly hasn't been studied in the Western modality of, of studying that, although it is beginning to get studied, but um, maybe from your experience and, and, you know, again, I think because that was something you're familiar with and because you've been doing this work for a while, um, do you think there are solutions for people who've been diagnosed with, as you said, mental injuries, which I think is a good way of putting it, uh, working with these traditional systems? And are there also uh, limitations to that, that that need to be seen as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful question. Um, so first of all, I totally feel there's a place for modern medicine's view of dealing with <clears throat> mental injuries. So if somebody is truly in a space of being of danger to themselves or others, medications can be like a life raft that helps to, you know, pacify the intensity in a way that is manageable. So a hundred percent. Like, uh, you know, even though I am a champion for shamanic medicines and indigenous traditions of healing, that doesn't mean if I hack off a limb, I'm not going to an emergency room to say, help me with this. Modern medicine has some incredible advancements that we're so blessed to live in the age to enjoy. Right. But modern medicine is more about that acute space of trauma rather than a long term process of healing. And so for me, once somebody's out of what we'll call the danger zone of, okay, now let's get to the root of this injury. Like, what is this about? Is it a mother wound, a father wound? Is it a trauma from childhood? What is it? And when we're on the medications, they kind of press pause in the processing of the trauma, which is great for survival, but not great for healing. And so... Um, to answer your question and around what environment is most appropriate essentially for healing. Uh, is it an ayahuasca ceremony in the Amazon? Is it a clinical space with synthetic psilocybin? I feel like that's a really personal exploration for each individual. And the way that I always frame it is back to our topic of safety. So if I ask a client, does it feel safer for you to be with a medicine man in a shamanic ceremony or a doctor? In, in a clinic, there's no wrong answer. And so for each of us to feel into what our, our definition of safety means in the moment, because well, the way we define it a week from now might be different. 
And how amazing that we live in a world where we have so many options now that are materializing all the time around how to work in a space of healing. So there's no wrong answer, but it, we want it to be, you know, in shamanic terms, we call it a calling that I feel called to sit with ayahuasca, that there's this mutual invitation, not that we're trying to fill a square intellectually speaking of like, well, I've read on the internet that ayahuasca works for this. Well, okay, maybe, but there are many other things that could work for what you're dealing with too. What are you called to? And that is the opposite of what modern medicine typically teaches, which is just trust your doctor, give away your sovereignty, your authority around your own body and do what you're told. I think that's one of the awakenings that's happened in a space, happening in a space of balance right now across the world is that we're coming back into a place of being responsible and accountable for our own well-being because there are so many choices. So there's no wrong answer, synthetic, organic medicine, shamanic ceremony, clinical space. It's, it's like, what feels safe? What am I called to do one step at a time? Um, and so that looks different for each of us. But I think the self-discovery to really feel into that is essential, not just giving away our power to somebody else because they say it will work. We wanna feel like, does it feel like it, it's what I am called to do? And in that space, I feel like we can't go wrong because there are risks associated with all of this. And and so we want to be discerning, but also feel our way through it, not just try to intellectualize it. This may be a little off topic, although I don't know, maybe it's not. Um, but you were speaking about this idea of division, and, and I think it's something that a lot of people are, are feeling right now. And I, <clears throat> I, I believe you're, you're coming from the U S which is also where I'm from. And, uh, there is a lot of division right now where, where I'm coming from right now in Peru, a lot of division. Um, and you know, it seems like even in a lot of the world, there's a lot of division. And, um, do you have a sense of, of maybe where that's coming from? What are the roots of that? I mean, we're certainly not living in a unique time, which we, I think we often think as well that, you know, <laughs> things are worse now than they ever been. Um, you can also look at it from the opposite, which is things are, you know, I think you could argue very strongly that things are actually maybe better now that they've, than they've ever been. But, um, you know, it's interesting because that division also has to do with what you were talking about uh, a bit earlier on, which is this idea of duality. Um, duality entails division. There's there's a there's a tug of war between two polarities, and uh, kind of like as we mentioned that that idea of wisdom, even you know, like in a Buddhist sense, is that middle way. And yet, it is such a difficult thing for the human being to to truly embody. Again, we we often understand it, or we think we understand it on an intellectual level. Um, you know, it's <laughs> even w when I was facilitating, it was always one of my favorite things to hear is, uh, when something was mentioned, often the, the knee jerk response is I know, <laughs> um, but again, there, there, there's a very different knowing between something that's coming from the intellect and something that's being embodied that actually is being put into action. So, um, this may be kind of a long-winded question, but can you speak a bit more about that division? Because I, I think it's something that's that's very present with people and, and people are really feeling. And it's something that the people are also trying to find a way to grasp. 
Um, you know, and even going back to this Buddhist perspective, like that idea of wisdom, um, you know, I, I once heard it translated really beautifully, which was this idea of putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Um, and for me, that's also one of the real powers of these plants like ayahuasca, you know, and again, it's a difficult to speak in things in this universal way because the experience is going to be very different for the individual. As you said, what are they ready for? Are they really feeling called to this? Uh, which is very different from just doing something and then expecting certain results. But, but I think on that deep level, there is something. I mean, you mentioned the Shipibo, their word for ayahuasca is uni, and that has to do with this idea of wisdom. Um, and, and so for me, that idea of wisdom that idea of putting yourself in someone else's shoes is very vital and, and, and maybe very needed for this time of division. But again, a long-winded question, but can you speak a bit more about that idea of division within the world? But, but as you said, like these plants aren't separate from the world and, and, and these plants really take us into division as well. You know, even that idea of you said, like the soul, who we are, what is our identity? You know, all of these things entail this division, this split from, you know, maybe even for, in a bigger sense from reality or from God, like that's, that's the primordial split of, of all of our suffering. Wow. Yeah. So beautiful. Thank you for bringing this in because it feels like a core wound that is essential for our understanding and integration in order for humanity to evolve. And it reminds me of a sit I had with Aya many years ago now, but where I was basically trying to understand what is it that we're trying to heal right now as a human culture? And what was coming in is this understanding that two things can be true at the same time. Two polarizing things can be true. And that there's a maturity in being able to sit in, let's say, a disagreement in how you and I might see the world, but to let both of us be completely valid and true in our perspectives. And that that spaciousness of, oh, I can see how you could see things that way. I see them this way. But that spaciousness dissolves the division of, to validate both of our perspectives, even if they are completely opposite, is part of the healing of the division. Because if we look at the fights and the wars and things that are happening, it's I'm right and you're wrong. It's always win-lose. And what I feel like the plants are doing, because it's the, this essential core of the stage of awakening we're in, is win-win. Of like, oh, I can hold that your perspective is just as valid as mine. And how can we both win in, in being validated, in, in being spacious enough to hold those two things? Because if we could do that together as a, as a culture, oh my gosh, that's the space in which we could create more of a utopia because it's no longer this divisiveness of right, wrong, eye for an eye, all of that. Um, it's a very easy thing to talk about and a very hard thing to hold. Um, but what the plants help us do, I think, is do that for ourselves, is to recognize that when we get angry or we other somebody for their behavior, as an example, that that darkness is in us too that there is nothing that anybody else holds that we aren't equally capable of. So the expression I use around that is there's a Hitler and a Mother Teresa in all of us. And the more we make friends with the Hitler, 
that we sit with the darkness, the more we can be in the embodiment of the light, but it doesn't happen by denying it. So when we are divisive, when we blame people for being or exhibiting things that uh, we don't agree with, it's because we, I feel we haven't learned to love those parts of ourselves too, because there isn't any separateness on that level. It's so easy to point fingers and place blame of this person's bad because X, Y, Z, like, nope, nope, they just circumstantially were given the set and setting to bring out that aspect of their darkness, but it's in us too. And so sitting with ayahuasca and going through the dark corners of our psyches gives us the opportunity to really recognize that of like, oh yeah, I have the capacity for violence. Of course I do. Everybody does, right? And so when we can come from that place of compassion and the awareness that we are truly all in this together, we can have that spaciousness and and agree to disagree and even celebrate it but that to me is like one of these core fundamental things we are desperately trying to break through in in our this evolution of our shadow exploration because i agree there's nothing new here in that regard covid was new the way in which all of these things come through may be new but the evolution into shadow and the breakthrough into more understanding it's the tale as old as consciousness itself. This is how evolution happens. It's just, we always think it's worse than it's ever been before, but you're right, it's also better because those go together too. So that is one of the incredible reflections that we get, those of us that are blessed to sit with this medicine is like, same, same, different. Yeah, just, yeah, it's, it's what evolution looks like. It's messy, but it works. And it's beautiful. The more we trust it and take responsibility and accountability for our role in it, the more graceful we can be in supporting each other through this this current shadow exploration. Yeah, I, I think that's super important. It, it, it reminded me of this this very beautiful quote, which is, um, "It's better to be a warrior in a time of gardening than a gardener in a time of war." and um, you know, I, I practice martial arts and I feel much more comfortable around a trained martial artist than I do someone who's not trained <laughs> because that person has learned the discipline. They, they, they've learned the art of warfare and they've also learned how to contain it and, and, and also why it's important to never use it <laughs> unless you absolutely have to. And, and, and I think that's a big part of, as you said, that this work of plants is, is really going into that darkness and, and understanding that within ourselves, because that is the only way that, that we can truly transform it and transmute it. Um, and, and also just a, a powerful statement. And, 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 and I like that you took it to that extreme of Hitler, because that, that's kind of the archetype of like all the evil in the world. Uh, and yet Hitler was a baby and Hitler was a human being. And there were reasons that he did what he did. And if we don't understand those, then we're just as susceptible for those things happening again. And, and the only way is to actually understand those and not just label or divide, because then we just continue that, that, that same patterning. Um, in the beginning, you, you used uh, this idea of plan intelligence. And <clears throat> I think for a lot of people, that's maybe kind of an oxymoron, although even in our more scientific uh, study, um, more and more, I think, people on an intellectual level are more open to that idea of plants are intelligence. 
are intelligent. Um, but even maybe, you know, like even that idea of intelligence, it, it, it's such a huge topic, which I, I think very few of us really have any understanding of maybe even what that means. But when you speak about that idea of plan intelligence, what does that mean to you? Um, because again, I think that's a foreign concept to a lot of people. And yet I think a lot of people in a deep down sense, there's something about that that resonates. And and obviously once someone begins to experience a plant like ayahuasca or, or wachuma or, or something like that, there's many ways the mind can intellectualize <laughs> kind of uh you know, a term I like is mental gymnastics about, you know, trying to put things in boxes that we somehow seem to understand. But at a certain point, a lot of those boxes begin to fall apart and we kind of have to go out on into a limb and maybe begin to use words that we're not so comfortable with, like this plant has an intelligence or has a consciousness. So is that something you can speak a, a little bit more about? Absolutely, because I certainly was one of those people when I found my way to this process. I looked at plants kind of as food and background energies, certainly not as teachers, <laughs> not at all. And I grew up in Montana in nature. So, you know, I had a reverent, connected relationship with nature, but um, not as a source of, of consciousness, which is what I mean by intelligence, is plants are. Of course, they're conscious. Everything is conscious. But I didn't know that then. So my evolution of understanding uh, the intelligence and consciousness of plants has obviously been experiential. But, you know, I'm sitting in Oregon, where I live, and looking out the window and seeing the intelligence of the trees in dropping their leaves to conserve energy to get through the winter that is coming. And it is utterly brilliant what the plants do in preparation in order to survive, you know, the awareness of, of the changing of the seasons. We witness the intelligence of nature all the time, but we don't often label it as intelligence. It's just, oh, that's just what nature does. Like, but if you really look at it, the, the entire tapestry of what's being communicated, plants, animals, rocks, you name it, there's such profound intelligence that has established itself over hundreds of thousands of years, you know? And so now that I can look through these eyes that have sat with ayahuasca so many times, it is abundantly obvious that plants are conscious, that they are intelligent, that they are sentient, that they respond to their surroundings. But I couldn't see that, um, mainly because, you know, plants, especially they're stationary, their feet are in the ground. So the way that they, they respond to their environment is very different than you and I, but it, it's certainly no less conscious or intelligent. Um, and so, you know, once we awaken to that intelligence, most of us then realize that that's our teacher, nature, whether we're drinking ayahuasca, whether we're taking walks through the forest and connecting with that intelligence, it's always available. But I really think that's one of the core wounds we work with, too, is that at least in the modern world, we've disconnected from our own nature because we are nature, too. And that's the reason why a lot of us are lost 
is is where we're not turning to our primary teacher, which is right outside our window, that is there responding to what's happening in the world, there to help support us, to teach us. But if we're not going to receive that intelligence because we don't believe it exists, as an example, that's a big, big hole in our own experience. And there's where we can learn tremendously from indigenous cultures that have never separated from nature. This is, by the way, the reason I personally sought out a Western teacher to learn how to work with ayahuasca, because my first indigenous maestro, he could not understand the incredible pain of being diagnosed bipolar, which is essentially being disconnected from nature and overwhelmed by emotions, because he'd never gone through it. He'd never disconnected from nature. So I was like, I got to find somebody who's Western that understands this psychosis, but that holds this indigenous training and can build that bridge for me because I didn't feel understood. And and because it's hard to understand, I'm sure, if you've never disconnected from the intelligence of nature, what that might feel like. And it's one of our core wounds in the modern world because it does make us feel crazy. Yeah. Just to play devil's advocate. Um... I think more from that intellectual point of view, like uh, I think maybe for example, a response would be, so for example, you said, well, the, the trees there, there's an intelligence that knows when to, 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 to let the leaves fall. I think some people would argue something along the lines of, well, that's just countless years of evolution that, you know, some trees didn't do that and they died out. And the ones that did that, uh, happen but there's no real intelligence there it's just it's just a process of of a physical reality that we live in that that's why that tree is now doing that um because it's beneficial to its survival and that that really all of nature works that way it's it's just a mechanism uh, certain things work certain things don't the things that work happen but there's no intelligence at work that's doing that <laughs> i love it yes it's kind of back to the conversation we had around safety of reframing it. Then, then we have to define what we mean by intelligence. If we hold that intelligence is simply, let's say, solving a math problem, maybe, you know, then I could argue, okay, nature doesn't have that form of intelligence. But to me, you know, one of the highest forms of intelligence is survival, is, is learning to survive and thrive in harsh, intense environments. If we agree that that is a form of intelligence, then nature's got that down because of hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. Then, you know, we're starting to see science that is validating this form of intelligence. Um, that um, trees, for example, know when there is a tree in danger in their community. Uh, for example, in my backyard, I have a bunch of Douglas fir trees, maple trees, beautiful trees. And there's this tree stump that um, the arborist who, who maintains our yard says you can never remove this tree stump because that tree stump is providing nutrients and life force to other trees around it. So it would look to us as if oh, it's just a tree stump. But in fact, to the symbiotic sense of survival and thrival, it's essential because there's an intelligence that is specific to that group of trees where they're supporting each other. And science is starting to prove this is true. 
well, we know it intrinsically, but that they, there's an intelligence in communication and a sentience. Um, there's sleep cycles that plants have that we know now. I mean, they're alive just like we are. They're just going through these processes in a different way because their feet are in the ground. So I think it's up to us to look at nature through a lens of expanding our definition of intelligence. Because again, if it's just uh, calculus or things that are purely intellectual, okay, then you win. Then nature isn't intelligent, but that's just one form of intelligence. And then when you actually consume and work with a plant like ayahuasca, and you start to realize the wildly intelligent way she leads us through the experiences of self-discovery, that, that is, opens up to a whole new level of recognizing how conscious and intelligent, but it has to be then experiential. Um, if you would have told me that 20 years ago, I might have just rolled my eyes and said, oh, isn't that cute? It's probably all in your head. But I've experienced it time and time again, and I cannot argue it anymore. Um, and it's expanded my not only my definition of intelligence, but my awareness of how how conscious nature is, too. But, you know, we got to experience it to truly know how true that is. So many indigenous cultures, I, I think, speak of things in a way that you were, that there is this underlying intelligence. I, I mean, um, even like Judeo-Christian religions, uh, that there's this, that there's God, that there's an intelligence, that there's a creator uh, that runs through all things. Um, uh, in the Amazon and Native North American traditions, this, this idea that everything has intelligence, that there's a consciousness to everything, that even something like a rock has a consciousness. Certainly plants have consciousness. Um, you mentioned a really interesting idea that, that like so much of our suffering or psychosis comes from this disconnect from nature. Um, and I was reminded, I mean, even in the culture that we come from, I mean, the, the, the founding fathers, the, the, the people who created these documents, which I think is really important to mention, like how sublime those ideas were. You know, we, we were speaking about the, the benefit of, of the four directions of medicine. Um, you know, and I think there's this emphasis to, in a lot of places, to argue the, the bad that the people did, but we forget the good and we forget, um, you know, how rare these, these revolutionary ideas were and, and how, um, you know, as we said, it's very easy to point the finger outside, but it, it's, you know, how many people truly have revolutionary ideas, you know, it's in the, in the history of the world, few. Um, but I, I was reminded about them because even, even them, which wasn't that long ago in the country that we come from, they said that their wisdom came from nature. So even for them, there wasn't a disconnect. <laughs> So wh where do you think that disconnect began to arise? Because uh, I, I, I very much resonate with what you said, that, that a lot of our psychosis, you know, maybe you could <laughs> even mention the majority or all of it, comes from that disconnect from nature. What does that mean? What does that mean to be disconnected from nature? Because I, I don't think a lot of people really think about things in terms of that way and, and why that is important. I mean, for the first time in, in world history, for example, more people live in cities than, than in the countryside. So, you know, there are a lot of people who just de facto are less and less 
in what might be considered a natural environment. And, you know, that brings up a whole host of questions like what is nature or are cities not natural, but, but certainly just in a, in a very like de facto way, like people are more and more living further and further from what traditionally would be considered nature. So can you, can you speak more about what that for you, that disconnect from nature really means and, and why that is so harmful? Absolutely. Sure. We can distill it down to a discussion we've already grounded in, and that is our identification in modern times with the mind. It is the I think, therefore I am declaration that, that has pulled us out of balance. And I think in a really beautiful evolutionary way, because if we are unconsciously connected to nature, um, that's beautiful, but it seems awakening is about making what is unconscious conscious. And so now we're coming, we've, we've gone to this place of getting so out of balance in identifying with the mind, I think, therefore I am, that now we're, we're realizing how much we're hurting as a result of that. And so hence the global awakening of working with plant medicines to come us to bring us back into conscious awareness of our relationship to nature, to ourselves. And I want to share a very concrete um, example of uh, the intelligence of nature in this way that maybe will make sense to people. I trained with an herbalist, a master herbalist for a period of time that is a expert on Lyme disease. And she showed me a map of the trajectory of Lyme disease across the world where it started popping up in the 50s and 60s. You know? And then she showed me uh, a plant called Japanese knotwood, which is one of the plants she works with to help suppress and work with the core symptoms of Lyme. And it's an invasive species that has been showing up around the world. And she put those two maps together, Lyme disease, Japanese knotwood, and they told the exact same story. And I get goosebumps every time I relay that because it's like, oh, wow, the intelligence that nature is like, hey, look out your window, responding to the suffering, not just because nature is a loving mother, but because we are nature. Our suffering is her suffering. Look, when we suffer, we treat our home like a garbage can, which causes her to suffer, which causes us to suffer. So our healing is the healing of nature too, because we are nature. So it just shows that this pendulum is gone to this place of, of suffering very necessarily. This is how evolutionary, how evolution works. But that is what I mean by the core wound of being disconnected and realizing that um, the things that we are seeking are right outside our window. And we, if we live in the city, we can bring the plants in, indoors. There's never an excuse that we can't be connected to the four directions and the four elements and the aspects that make us up on a physical and energetic level and that make up every single part of the world. So it's, it's, the good news is it's always available to reconnect with no matter where we are. Um, but the, the, it's not bad news, but the flip side of that is if we don't address that core wound, uh, we're not going to stop suffering because it's as the way that we treat the earth, I really think it reflects the way we treat ourselves because we, as a physical being, we're made up of the earth. And so it's, it's just a mirror. And I think you're right that all of the psychosis in some way or another comes back to that 
comes back to this, this disconnection from who we are as earth beings. We're of the planet. And so if we're treating her poorly, we're treating ourselves poorly and that hurts, but that's what we are healing. Yeah. In the beginning, you, you said that one of your real passions right now is integration. Can you speak about that? Like what is integration? Why is that important? I mean, certainly I think people who are maybe a bit more involved in plant medicines, that it, it's kind of a, they're familiar with that word. They may be familiar with that process, but, but just speaking more about that, like, what does that mean? Why is it important? How, how does that uh, kind of interweave with, with the work of, of plant medicines? Yeah, it's funny because it's a word we're using quite frequently now, but you ask somebody to define it and we typically trip over our words of like, well, what is integration? So for me, integration is exactly what we're talking about in like not letting the wisdoms, the insights, the experiences we're having, not just in plant medicine spaces, but in our spiritual journey, not letting them stay only in the intellect. Because I don't know how many times I've sat with ayahuasca where, you know, I'll, I'll uh, come up against something like victim consciousness of like, well, I know that I'm not a victim to the things that happen in my life. But I can tell it's not embodied, which is the word that I use instead of integration, I use embodiment, is, is a lot of good intellectual wisdom does if it's not permeating in every cell of my being, if I'm not walking in that truth. So it's kind of the difference between intellectual understanding and full body wisdom. And that's to be what the process of integration is. It's taking these things that we become aware of on an intellectual level and doing the work, which is very personal, not only for each of us as individuals, but for each thing we're integrating, but doing that work to bring it in on a cellular level. So I can tell you what that always involves is the somatic relationship with our bodies. If we don't involve the body in the process of integration, we're just stuck in our minds. And that intellectual understanding doesn't do a darn good bit of good around suffering if it isn't embodied. So although integration, it's very personal and unique for each of us in what we're doing, it has to involve somatic work. I can't think my way to integration. I got to involve some movement, some emotional processing. You know, I have to involve all of me, essentially, because if we look at integration as a sense of completion, that we've taken an experience and we've grounded it in to the best of our ability, then that involves the emotional body, the physical body and the intellectual body. Now, all of it has to be included. And, and our, our, because we identify so much with our minds, I think our inclination is to just think our way to that space of integration. And I see the results of that all the time, that it's frustrating and painful. And then the body still gets sick and it hurts. And there's all these sort of reflections of, yeah, it's not fully integrated yet because, um, because the evidence will show us that if that's the truth. So embodiment for me is a better word than integration because we can kind of feel like, oh, I know what that means. That involves somatic work. So what does that look like? I mean. In general, are, are there are there practices? Are there things you could recommend to people? Also, maybe in your own work, what does that look like when someone comes to you for integration? Yeah, well, I can tell you, again, a, a universal aspect of this is um, we have to have, I think, a foundation of showing up for ourselves. So a spiritual practice, 
And it can look however we want it to look, but it has to involve checking in. Like for example, my practice, every single morning, I start my day at my altar. And sometimes the core question I'll ask is, how you feeling, kid? What's happening? Just checking in, being in integrity with the emotional process, discomfort in my body, and the reverse, the things that are buzzing with life and that feel amazing and like just but being with it. So it's a balance of, ayahuasca calls this a doobie 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 dance, is a balance of doing and being. And most of us are do, 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 which means we're in that intellectual space. So we have to balance with being. And that to me is a spiritual practice. It could be about getting on the yoga mat every morning and checking in with what's happening in the body and being fluid in the movements. It could be meditation of just being with emotions. It could be like I do a whole ritual honoring the four directions and working with the elements. I choose an element each morning to really go into of like, oh, fire, okay, where's their fire in me? There's so many ways to look at this, but the core of it involves checking in with something other than just our thoughts being conscious and aware of what the body is experiencing, what our emotions are. Journaling, of course, is a beautiful part of the practice of just telling the truth about our experience because we can't do anything with what we're experiencing if we're not being honest and being aware of what that might be. So it's just basically committing to doing something other than intellectualizing the experience we're having as humans. So if people don't have a foundation of a spiritual practice, it's unlikely that anything's coming to the surface around what's next in terms of their healing journey, because they're not listening. They're just thinking their way through. So that's the foundation. And then from there, when we're showing up every day for ourselves, insights come, homework comes of like, oof, I'm feeling like, I need more time in meditation or, wow, I've got stagnation in my body. I need to move more, whatever it is. But if we're not checking in, we're not going to know. In the beginning, and we've spoken mainly about um, kind of ayahuasca and and your work and and just work in general with that, but you also mentioned a second plant, which was Huachuma or San Pedro. Can you speak a bit more about that, what that is, um, like what it means for you? You also use this interesting dichotomy that, you know, uh, ayahuasca represents more for you, this kind of archetypal feminine and, and wachuma, more this archetypal masculine. Um, so can you speak more about the, the, the just wachuma in general? I would love to. I love this medicine so much. So wachuma in the classification of psychotropic medicines is an empathogen, whereas ayahuasca is is more of a traditional psychedelic. Um, And what that means, other empathogens are like MDMA, and of course, peyote, which is one of the the cousins to Wachuma, is that it's more of a feeling medicine than it is a cosmic journeying medicine. Um, So Wachuma is, is much more in the body and he is heart medicine. So I love working with Wachuma on the tail end of working with ayahuasca. Say in a given retreat, we work with ayahuasca a handful of times and that we end with Wachuma because he helps with integration, actually, because he's more embodied. He shows us the truth of what we're carrying on a physical and an emotional level. Um, and Wachuma is the medicine that taught me that it is safe to feel my emotions. Um, not only safe, but essential for my healing journey. But like, it, it's very different than the sort of 
DMT fueled cosmic intense visual experience that ayahuasca can be. Um, when Wachuma is challenging, it's challenging because it, he's bringing us into intense processing of emotions like grief or anger. Um, it's not to say that there isn't a visual component, but the visual component with Wachuma for me is kind of like the veil is lifted and I can see the world as I perceive it really is alive and so colorful. And I can see the life force of plants and rocks and humans. Um, it's just like, it's kind of like Windex for, you know, all of our senses, really. It just it brings us into a much more heightened, aware, connected space. Uh, with Wachuma, when I'm really deep in that portal, it's just so abundantly obvious how connected we all are, how, how we truly are nature, but it's obvious in an experiential way. It is not a thinking medicine. Uh, I think Wachuma is having a, a start of a renaissance because of that, because when you're really deep with the energy of that medicine, there's not a lot of thought at all. It is purely presence of like, wow, a tree, and you know, feeling the beauty and the life force of that tree, just feeling. I love it when I realize I've been deep in the portal of Wachuma for a long period of time and I haven't been thinking, just been feeling and experiencing and processing. And boy, do we need that balance. That is, that, that's medicine right there for the vast majority of us that, uh, can't remember the last time we were experiencing consciousness without it being thought-based. So that's the power of this particular medicine is to bring us back into our hearts. Hmm. Beautiful. As we begin to, to wrap this up, um, where, do you, where do you see all of this work going? Because it's often spoken about that we're, we're in this time of renaissance, I think there's there's this real intersection of um, people discovering these, or maybe rediscovering these indigenous traditions, the, these plants like ayahuasca, wachuma. Uh, there's a real movement towards legalizing uh, these plants. There's a real movement towards working with synthetic substances in a clinical setting. Um, there's a lot of research that's going on uh, into the mind, the psyche, trauma, um, even working with people like war veterans. I mean, it's much more at the forefront of people's consciousness. And, you know, much like you said, when you started 20 some years ago, no one had any idea what you were talking about. Now, most people probably do. Maybe not in depth, but it's somewhere in their consciousness. It's somewhere in their radar. So do you have any sense or maybe of where this work is heading and, and maybe uh, positives and negatives of that, of, of like, you know, coming from your experience, like how are ways that this work can really move beneficially into society? And also are there things that um, maybe we need to be careful of as well? So I love that you asked the question on the heels of talking about Wachuma, because Wachuma is the medicine that reminds me to be audacious with my optimism, because it's very easy to get hypnotized by the challenges that you're naming. And there are many. Um, the challenges right now that are very apparent is just sort of the uh, the way that the, the Western world sometimes takes full possession 
of indigenous understandings and wisdoms and medicines and puts them in a lab and regurgitates them without the organic consciousness and tries to make them cures when in fact they're catalysts. And so there's a lot that we have to learn that we are learning around sacredness, around reciprocity, around our relationship as being part of nature. But I truly believe that even though the pendulum is going to the other side right now in terms of the clinical space, staking ownership around the medicines and, you know, in the United States, the legalization movement is not for shamanic beings. It's for clinical practitioners who go through the system and get a gold star and work with synthetics. And so, yeah, that's painful. But I really just see that as as growing pains because I see the bigger picture that's happening is that we are awakening as individuals to our sovereignty around our own relationships with our bodies and that we are awakening around our relationship to nature. And so it's, it's to me, I think it's going to be short-lived that we think healing happens in a doctor's office with a synthetic medicine. Uh, and again, for some people, that will be the space where healing happens. So not to even um, just cast that off as, as a, uh, uh, a waste of time, because it's not but it's not the end of the story if we're not healing our relationship with nature. So I am audacious in, our, in, in my optimism that I feel like the timing of this, this movement with plant medicine is also part of the greater intelligence because if we don't get in right relationship with this planet as a species, she's gonna flick us right off because we can, a lot of us feel that sort of conflict of, oh, the clock is kind of ticking. It's pretty intense right now, but I think the plants have come in and, 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 and to support us in that of like, hey, it, it, it's okay. You were supposed to do this. You were supposed to go into your shadow, abuse your home, abuse yourselves, abuse each other, but not forever. So they're supporting us in healing those parts of ourselves that's created that, that conflict. And so I see what we're going through now as a last big contraction around fighting for the right to be destructive, essentially. Fighting for the right to say, screw the planet, screw each other, let's just fight, basically. But a lot of us are like, no, that doesn't feel like a place to stay in. You know, the evolution is all the things that we've been talking about. So for me, the train has left the station in terms of the tipping point of awakening. Uh, the evidence might be otherwise in terms of the headlines, but that's part of the deceptiveness of the, the darkness. It would like you to believe it's the whole story. It's not the whole story. Because 20 years ago, I wasn't having conversations like this every day. Now I am with people all around the world that are waking up to this. And that gives me tremendous hope that we're cracking the code. We're figuring it out and that this contraction we're in now is just a contraction. And what do we say about contractions? They're what women go through to give birth. So that's what we're going through, a universal contraction that is painful and messy, that giving birth always is, but it's about what we're giving birth to that matters, not the contraction, because we're going to forget about the contraction as soon as we get into a space that feels like, oh, this is more love. This is more connectedness and it's worth it. So Wachuma keeps me in that uh, audacious optimism that we're moving someplace absolutely magical. Uh, and, and yeah, I can feel that. That's what drives me every morning when I get up and do this work. Is it's working. We're getting there. And I don't believe the headlines because that's just a tiny part of the story. Wonderful, Kat. It has been wonderful. Um, is there anything that we we didn't touch on that you'd like to to talk about before we we come to a close? 
Well, the last piece that's coming in, I just kind of touched on it a bit, is the, the reciprocity, is just to remind each of us that uh, because we are nature, the essential part of our own healing involves giving back, involves like not forgetting that um, any aspect of healing that we are lucky to experience is a result of the intelligence of nature that we're speaking of. And the more of us that are engaging in what, you know, in our traditions, we call Aini, that sacred reciprocity, um, the faster this whole contraction can be moved through is that there's a disease of entitlement in our culture of taking and taking that when we balance it with reciprocity, oh my gosh, there's no end to the magic and make sure that future generations get to experience the magic of the plants that are changing our lives now too. It's, it's essential that we make that part of our commitment um, or you know, there's a finite period of, of getting to enjoy these intelligent beings. So just wanted to plant that seed literally and figuratively. Do you have any, and, and obviously it's going to depend on, on every individual, but the kind of practical ways that people can do that, because I, I think a lot of people feel called to do that, but they're, they're kind of uncertain of, of like where to start because it's, it can often seem like a very abstract, concept for a lot of us, which, you know, it shouldn't necessarily be that way. But I, I think for a lot of people, it is. And they, they, they maybe have that desire, but they're, they're not sure where to start. Yeah, it's a beautiful question, because I think a lot of people feel limited by time and money, because that's the first place we go to is, oh, I can give to charities that are, you know, protecting the Amazon, putting sacred plants back in the ground, which you can. But if you don't have that option of resources, you don't have time to volunteer, it's actually more simple than we might imagine. Of course, you could have a garden, you know, where you're actually getting your hands in the soil and, and you can do that in the city as well as you can do that in the country. But even to make it even more simple than that is um, reminding that, that the connection that we can have to the elements in the direction. You know, what if you prayed over your bath water every time you took a bath? And you prayed for the health and well-being of the planet and the waters, and you bathed in that as an individual. That doesn't take any money or time. It takes intention. And the core of all shamanic work starts and ends with intention. So to be more intentional about maybe adding to that spiritual practice we were talking about a bit ago is that you pray for the health of the planet every day. You visualize vitality and plants thriving and waters being healthy like if we don't visualize it we can't create it so even that simple act is part of reciprocity it may not feel tangible but it is the figurative planting of the seeds and being really intentional with what we know is possible that's why Wachima holds me in that space of be reckless with your optimism because anything less is enabling the darkness to continue its journey. So start with the power of intention and visualization and prayer, whatever resonates in terms of how to give that language. Um, and then, you know, if you're guided to do something more tangible and you have the, the resources, fantastic. But don't ever underestimate the power of being intentional and, and holding things like a shower or a bath or a cup of water as sacred, like, thank you for this. Thank you for the opportunity to hydrate. Thank you for the food. Like that practice is powerful. So we can all at least make that more of a mission. Yeah, great. Well, Kat, if, if people are interested in 
learning more about you or, or the work you do or, or, or working with you, contacting you? What, what's the best way for people to, to do that? Ah, thank you for asking. My company is called Plant Medicine People. So people can go to plantmedicinepeople.com and I have a blog and course offerings and all kinds of things. You can connect there anytime. Wonderful. Well, well thank you very much for, for coming on and sharing. It's, it's really been a pleasure. And I, I think you, you hold and embody a, a lot of that wisdom of plants, which very much, as you said, I mean, is also synonymous with life and, and also comes from experience, which is something that's really, really invaluable and, and it can't be replicated. Um, and, and I think more people like you are, are really important to, to really speak about this work from an experiential place and, and, and not just, and again, not minimizing the importance of the intellectual space because there is an importance to it, but, but from that embodiment, from that, that experiential place, um, um, it's something that's not replicable. Like you, you have to do the work and, and it shows. So thank you very much for coming on. And, uh, and I hope, um, you know, some people reach out to you and, and continue to help with the work you're doing. And, and again, just thank you very much for coming on and, and sharing all of your wisdom. Thank you so much, Jason. It's been an honor. All right, that's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kat. It was really a pleasure for me to have her come on and share in her wisdom, which I think she has a lot of, and she speaks really beautifully and eloquently, um, I think, about a lot of uh, truths of this work. And, and again, really speaking from a, a place of, of deep experience, and, and I think it really shows. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, as always, if you're able to help to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Uh, Patreon is a really good option. Uh, it's a subscription service. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, there's different tiers, which give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As, as we talked about in the podcast. Um, I, I like that website in that it works on this idea of reciprocity. So uh, if you feel like you're gaining something from this podcast, it's a really beautiful way to give back and then also to receive certain things back from, from that giving as well. Um, if you're not able to do that, as always, just helping with the algorithm algorithms is a really big help. So if you're viewing this on YouTube or Rumble, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, all of those things are really big help. And then with the audio versions on um, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, leaving a starred rating following the show. Uh, and with Apple Podcasts, leaving a short review is also a really big help. So uh, my next episodes, uh, I believe after this, I'll be releasing an episode where I was interviewed um, speaking uh, a lot about tobacco and the, the medicinal aspects of it, uh, the idea of doing a plant dieta, the, the power of trees, how they teach us, what the archetypes are, uh, also speaking about ayahuasca. Uh, it was a really good interview, and I, I, I think and, and hope you'll you'll get a lot out of that episode. I have a woman coming on named Leela Lieberman, who also does a lot of work with plant medicines and has studied in various traditions in the Amazon and, I believe, Australia and South Africa, where she lives. Uh, I've listened to a few of her talks. She was recommended to me, and, uh, yeah, I think just a really beautiful person and, and speaking really, uh, again, from this place of deep experience of this work. So that should be a really good conversation. Uh, hopefully, I mentioned this a few times, but hopefully we'll be able to line this up as a local Cardo guy named Victor, who I hope to bring on. Uh, it's been a little tricky trying to, to, to find a time with that. 
Um, and I think that's all I have lined up uh, for the next few episodes after that. Uh, I still need to play around with the order of, uh, of how I'll do things. Um, but as always, I hope to bring on some really fascinating guests. So thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope this finds you all well. Uh, and I will see you all on the next episode. Thank you.